I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep, you might say, on a particular topic. And today I'm pleased to have Natasha Smith and Brittany Smith on the program. They're the co-authors of a new book, Unplanned Grace, a compassionate conversation on life and choice. Now, before we get started today, I need to make a couple of disclosures. First of all, Natasha Smith is already well-known to Ministry Watch podcast listeners. She's my co-host on our weekly Friday episodes. And Brittany Smith, her co-author, is, well, she's my daughter. But this is a book I would want to feature on the podcast, whether I had a relationship with the authors or not. In fact, because I do have a relationship with them, we almost decided not to feature the book on the podcast, but we didn't want to punish them for that either. So here they are, because I think that what they're writing about is important. It focuses on the work of 2,500 pregnancy resource centers in this country. That's a ministry segment that we've covered extensively here at Ministry Watch for years. Both Natasha and Brittany work for Save the Storks, a pro-life ministry based in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We had this conversation in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, Brittany and Natasha, welcome to the program, and um, I want to talk about Unplanned Grace. Natasha, I understand this book was your idea, is that correct? Yes. A few years ago, I was touring the country and meeting women who were working within the pregnancy center movement, and hearing their stories was remarkable. And just seeing how pro-woman the pro-life movement really is just really uh, stood out to me, and I wanted to draw some more attention to that to answer the criticism that I've heard of, well, we don't really care about women. And every person that I met in any pregnancy center had been there before, had deep care for these women, and they offered more holistic um, answers to women. So we wanted to shed a little light on that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, kind of attracted me to the book, at least on the ministry watch hat that I wear, is that uh, you know, we we like to talk about Christian ministries and what Christian ministries are doing, and I think that that what the pregnancy care center movement is doing in this country is kind of a, an untold story. Even though I get, you know, uh, John Stone Street and I devoted a chapter to it in our book, Restoring All Things, but you guys really dug into this in a much much deeper way, and in some ways, you you expose the lie that Christians don't care about babies after they're born. But in fact, the pregnancy care movement is powerful testimony that in fact they do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's over 2,500 pregnancy care centers across the nation. um, And the majority of them offer pre-birth services. You know, they're walking with the woman as she's making that decision and contemplating, you know, what decision she wants to make. And then for women who choose to parent or place their child for adoption, they have so many resources for them. You know, they have um, free ultrasounds, free pregnancy tests. They have parenting classes. They have referral 
large referral um, bases that they've built up in their communities to help women with very specific needs that they might have if they need a job, if they need to leave an abusive relationship, you know, so there's, they're able to meet the need for each woman because each woman that comes in has a very specific story and need that they um, are looking to have met. And the Pregnancy Care Center movement is able to do that. Well, I want to dig into what some of those specific needs are because y'all devote chapters to them. You talk about sexual abuse, for example, and physical abuse and financial problems that might be the you know the most acute in a particular story. But um, before I kind of dig into that, I want to just observe that the book is divided into sections where you'll tell a story and then you'll kind of talk uh, more uh, by a story. You'll, you'll tell a woman's story and then you'll tell other stories in the other part of the book, you know, but they're more stories of the pregnancy care centers and how they're meeting those needs and some of the facts and data. So there's one story in particular. I don't know which one of you should tell this story and I may not get it quite right, but Rosaliana, Rosaliana, Rosaliana. So briefly tell her story. It's one of the early stories in the book. I thought it was a really great story and it, and it also kind of encompassed a lot of the issues that you guys are talking about in the book. Yes. Hers is one of my favorite stories, and I got to meet her at her son's first birthday, which was just amazing to hear her story from her own lips about how complex her scenario is. And the pregnancy center that served her, the executive director there who'd worked you know, her entire career in that ministry said that her story was the hardest that she had ever heard. And she was a immigrant. Let from, me interrupt you. Where was this? Where was where was the pregnancy care center in Rosalianas? They were in Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. So she was an immigrant from Venezuela, came here, overstayed her visa, was facing potential deportation. She had been kicked out of of her home as soon as she was um, dating a guy. And as soon as she found out of her pregnancy, he kicked her out of the home. So she was homeless. She couldn't get a job because she was now facing deportation. And so her scenario, everything was against her, which totally made sense then why she felt like abortion truly was her only option. She was a surgical nurse, so she was well-educated, but she could not find a job. And so she felt like her only option, you know, was to have an abortion because she couldn't face the reality of uh, starvation and watching her child die in that scenario. So she was terrified. So what did the Pregnancy Care Center do? do for her? They took their mobile medical unit near her community, offered her free um, pregnancy tests, ultrasound, but they heard her story. And through that, realized what her real needs were, you know, homelessness and the facing the deportation all by herself. And the um, all of that really was a lot of stress for her. So they connected her to a church and a church member opened her home to Rosliani. So she had that need met. And then they connected her to an attorney who heard her story and said, your life is worth it. And that child's life is worth it. And I'm going to fight for both of you. And he did that. And now she is wanting to take that step as well. Currently, she she uh, told me she wants to become a lawyer so she can help other people who are facing that same thing. So, so right now, I mean, you wrote the book, I don't know when that story, but probably a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half or two years ago. So what's the status right now? Where is she now? Do you know? Yeah, she's still thriving now. She um, is in Maryland. And uh, last I heard, she has a green card and is working. And she is working really hard to provide for her son, who she named Emmanuel, which I love because she realized that God was with her through all that difficult time. And he was with her through that pregnancy center and all these people in the church 
and the local community who rallied around her. Yeah, one of the things I really liked about that story was, I mean, it had a happy ending, so I guess that just makes you feel good. But uh, at least at least so far, it's had a happy ending. I mean, you know, it's a long life, but, you know, so far, so good, right? Um, but not only was it the story of the pregnancy care center coming alongside her, but it was also this lawyer, and it was the church, and it was it was um, uh, finan- you know, providing financial resources. And, and, and yet the pregnancy care center really was the nexus for that. That was the place that they were like the quarterback um, for all of that stuff happening. And and in that story or, or right around that story, you mentioned that 73% of women uh, choose abortion for financial reasons. And we think of pregnancy care centers sometimes not meeting those financial needs, but in this case, they were absolutely instrumental in that. And apparently they do that a lot. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that is such an amazing statistic because really that is a way that the church and the local community can really get involved um, by meeting the financial needs of women, um, if that's the number one reason women are getting abortions. And, you know, pregnancy centers are already doing that. They're providing uh, free diapers, free formula, baby clothing, free parenting classes. Um, They even do counseling services. Many of them do that. Um, And so I think uh, the Charlotte Lozier Institute has actually done a lot of research on a lot of the economic impact that PRCs are providing, and they save taxpayers $270 million every year with the free services they that they provide, including ultrasounds, which are you know very expensive, and pregnancy tests, and a lot of well women care. So there's a lot of medical services that they're providing as well. So you, that's one area of the of um, care that the pregnancy care centers provide, which is sort of helping with the financial side of things. Um, there was another statistic that really jumped out at me, and um, and that was that 74%, almost the same, 73% choose abortion for financial reasons. We talked about that. 74% of women who had an abortion felt pressure uh, to have an abortion. And I was, you know, uh, I guess I maybe had known this sort of vaguely in the back of my mind before, but that pressure came from all sources. I mean, it came from the the father. It came, it would come from the community. It would come from the family. In many cases, it would be a mother of the mom uh, that was the grandmother. The grandmother, yeah, who was providing the pressure. And so, for the for the women to choose not to abort really took a lot of courage. Number one, and took a lot of support outside the family as well, right? Absolutely. And that's one thing that we say in there is anyone who chooses life in this scenario is genuinely a hero because it's hard and they do face so much pressure. And that is why they need so much encouragement in this to really be able to make their own decision. That's really what we're trying to get at here is when the pressures, the finances, the circumstances are directing you, do you really have a choice? And so many feel like they didn't. And that's a tragedy. Some who, you know, do end up making that decision. We also have a chapter on after abortion care and healing which is also offered through pregnancy centers. So they're there for women, no matter what they choose, to ensure that she comes to a place of healing and a thriving life, which is so core to the gospel yeah. and and the goal of all of this. Yeah. And I also think, you know, this is um, a huge place that both the church and local communities can step in because the pregnancy center, like you said, I love that analogy of they're the sort of the nexus or the quarterback and they're there to help these women. And then 
bringing the church on, you know, we saw in Rosliani's story, I mean, that made a huge difference for her. So that's a big part of our book, too, is we want the church to see that there's very practical ways that they can get involved on this issue. Right. Well, I wanted to come to that subject later, but since you guys have both kind of brought it up in a different way, let me go ahead and jump into it now, because the church really does play an important role. Um, I mean, we saw in Rosliani's story, we saw that, you know, the church came alongside, and that was super important. I, I think that another aspect of this is not only can the church help um, and should, and the church should help. But I think there's also a reality that that there are women who have had abortions that are sitting in the pews of our churches. That, um, and I can't remember where in the book. Maybe you, one of you guys can refresh my memory about the number of women who when they have their first abortion, they're members of a local church, number one. And number two, uh, when you mentioned the post-abortion care, it also reminded me that with how many, 50 million, 60 million abortions that we've had in this country right now, um, it is, you know, if you know five women or more, you know a woman who's had an abortion probably, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a big area that churches can really start talking about this issue because they do have women in their pews that have had an abortion. Um, The CareNet study that we reference in the book, um, I believe it was one in three women were attending church at the time of their first abortion. And I think over 50% of women have never told anyone in their congregation that they've had that. And so that's something that they've never been able to process. A lot of women feel a lot of guilt and shame. Um, They feel like church members might judge them or they won't be accepted in their congregation. So that's a huge area that we can start talking about. Well, one of the uh, other areas I want to I want to kind of land the plane with talking about some practical things and also talk a little bit about the book itself and sort of the I want to I like to get into the nuts and bolts of how even though I I was had an up close and personal view with you guys writing this book I want to ask a couple of questions that maybe our listeners might not know about how y'all wrote the book but I want to get to that in a minute the, I want to talk a little bit first though about domestic abuse because that was another area when I was reading your book that really jumped out at me an area that I guess was um I had been sort of vaguely aware of, but your book made it really real, and that is that domestic abuse is far more often than not an element of the decision to either abort or have the baby. Is that is that fair and accurate? Yes. Domestic violence increases over 60% for pregnant women. And so when they are facing an unplanned pregnancy in that kind of relational stress, they're genuinely afraid for their lives. And so if you're facing that, it, it kind of makes sense. Like they are doing this as self-defense in some ways, which is a tragedy that they're even in that kind of scenario. And what pregnancy centers will do and what, what Save the Storks does uh, with providing them with mobile medical units where they can go into communities where women might not be able to come to their brick and mortar, they can then hear their story, understand what kind of um, you know, home they're in and figure out how to provide them with a safe housing uh, alternative. And I've met with women who who did that. And there's a story in there from a woman I interviewed from Iowa who said that choosing her son's life ultimately gave her what she needed to choose a better life for herself because mm-hmm. she kept she was in a cycle of domestic violent scenarios and just kept on getting into those relationships and then realized 
she doesn't have to. And the pregnancy center helped walk her through that. And now she's absolutely thriving. And her stories, uh, her name is Brienda. If you read the book, you'll read more of her story there. And it's just powerful to see how people can overcome with the help of others. Yeah, exactly. And I think this issue in particular is super complicated because it's not just a matter of leaving the relationship because a lot of times your finances are wrapped up in that relationship, your housing, you know, a lot of your livelihood. Um, And a lot of women, uh, if they do leave a relationship, their partner ends up stalking them. A lot of women are end end up being killed by their partner if they try to leave. So there's a lot of danger involved in this issue and very understandable why there's a lot of fear, why women feel like their only choice is abortion. Yeah, just recently in Louisiana, so in 2020, homicide was the leading cause of death for pregnant women. Wow. So it's very real. And this was just last year. This was in 2020 that they came out with that. Yeah. Um, there's one other area of pressure that I want to talk about before we kind of move on. And and I, I, talk, I want to talk about it in these terms because, you know, these are all reasons that women have an abortion that we in the church can mitigate. We can play a role in mitigating these areas of pressure. Um, this, this area is maybe, uh, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what the role the church can play because this is more of a cultural problem. But you, you guys told the story of Matt Hammett. And um, Matt used to be the lead singer for the band uh, Sanctus Real, which had a, a, a lot of hits. Some of our listeners may know Sanctus Real. And, um, but Matt and his wife, um, when they were pregnant, were told that they should abort because their little baby, um, who was ultimately born and was named Bowen, uh, had, a, had a congenital heart defect. And again, y'all told that story in the book, and um, it highlighted the idea for me that pressure comes from all quarters. It came even from the medical community in this case, the medical community who supposedly takes the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think his story is amazing um, because for them— Abortion was never an option, but they even in interviewing them and talking to them about their story, they made, you know, they made the point that people obviously trust doctors. People trust what their medical professional is telling them. So a lot of women who are on the fence are unsure and they have a doctor telling them, you know, your child won't have a good life or, you know, this this is not a good idea. You should abort. I it's totally understandable why they would think that listening to their doctor is the best option. Right, especially for those who already have unhealthy relationships or have these other pressures on top of then hearing from a medical expert that this child's life isn't really worth living or your the pressure on your own life as a parent will be so difficult, as opposed to elevating them and saying, we can support you as a community. And that's, again, where the church can step up in beautiful places, because Matt Hammett, of course, has an amazing community and a strong family, and it's knit their family together in really beautiful ways. And I think that's the thing that we can lose is thinking like how much beauty can come from even the difficulties of life and pro-life ministries can help invite people who can't see that silver lining around the very hard times and offer them a a piece of hope and then walking with them towards that thriving life. Yeah. uh, Natasha and Brittany, we've got to land this plane here in just a minute. But before we do that, there's one uh, one area that I do want to talk about, uh, one more area, because I, you know, in in some ways, uh, I think 
the argument that pro-abort, pro-choice people make um, about abortion is often related to rape. And um, rape uh, is, uh, you know, no question that it's real. Uh, no question that there are some babies conceived in rape. I mean, the reality is it's an extremely small number, but it is a non-zero number. I mean, it's a real number. But you guys interviewed Ryan uh, Bomberger in your book, uh, who was conceived in rape, and uh, which I thought was a pretty powerful, you know, testimony. For, and you also interviewed Megan Allman as well, um, who is um, well known for making the case for life. So, what did Megan tell you? What did Ryan tell you that are relevant to this question about abortion and rape? Yeah. Well, I would say this is definitely the hardest topic, one of the hardest topics in the book and doing the research for this. Uh, And I just kind of want to start off. Megan made a really good point when I interviewed her was that we have to first and foremost acknowledge that this is a difficult subject. This is a horrible thing that's happened to a woman. And we have to come from a place of empathy for her, find the support for her, you know, if if it means if we don't know who the rapist is, like, look, you know, getting legal law enforcement involved. Um, so, you know, we don't want to discredit what happened. Right. But I think Ryan would also make the point that a lot of times this topic is used to justify 100 percent of abortions, even though it's less than three percent that actually is happening. And it's still a life, right? We still have to acknowledge that this is a life. And I think a lot of the women we interviewed in this chapter would say, I had an abortion because I was raped. And that was almost like a second trauma Mm -hmm. adding on top of the trauma. And so we really feel like there's so many resources and after abortion care that is out there um, and also help for women to choose possibly choose adoption or even like Jennifer Christie's story, you know, she chose life after a rape and for her, she's never looked back. I mean, for her, this was a blessing. Um, So, I mean, I think that there's so many stories out there that would negate the idea that abortion has to happen in cases of rape. Yeah, I would say just purely from a sort of a, a theological and ethical point of view, the old saying, two wrongs don't make a right, um, you know, has to apply or at least has to be thought about in this situation. Yes, the rape was wrong, but that does not become an excuse for doing another wrong, which is to abort the child. If it is a human life, then it is a human life, no matter what the source of that human life is. It seemed to be one of Megan's points. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. You've talked to her too. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So let a couple of quick uh, things to kind of close with. Um, I was taken by the stories that were kind of between the chapters or were, there was a, uh, there was a story that was a chapter. It might've been a short chapter and then another chapter. Often there were other stories within the chapter, but a couple of other things I wanted to mention, you had a prayer at the end of almost, almost every chapter, maybe in every chapter, I can't remember now. Um, why did you want to include a prayer? Yeah, I think this issue is such a hard and big issue. It's hard to know where you start. 
You know, it's so difficult because it's overwhelming. It's such a tragedy, and yet it's such a polarizing and political thing. It's hard to kind of get your feet under you. And I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor and missionary, and he would say, our battle is one on our knees. And so that's where this idea kind of stemmed from was we need to pray. (laughs) We need to start asking the Lord to shape our hearts, to see people as He sees them, to see the abortion clinic workers, those who are, you know, the rapists, those who are victims, like everyone in this story, the unborn as well, to see them as God sees them. And He cares because they are human beings made in His image, and we're all lost, all in need of a Savior. And so if we start posturing ourselves to receive God's shaping and forming, then we can be more active participants in his redemption. Yeah. Well, I really loved the prayers at the end because, um, like you said, I mean, you know, Christians believe prayers really matter, that prayers can make a difference, number one. And number two, um, it kind of takes the excuse away from somebody reading the book and saying, I don't know what to do. Well, you can pray. And if you don't know how to pray for someone or for this cause, just read the prayer at the end of the chapter. You know, hear the words, pray the words. And, you know, there's also the old saying that prayer doesn't change God. God is unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But prayers do change us. So just the, the, you know, the the prayers and the—so if you know nothing, pray. If you don't know what to do, pray. And in the process of praying, there's a very real chance that you might be changed in the process. Your imagination might be quickened to— actually do something in addition, not instead of prayer, but in addition to prayer. Brittany, were you going to say something more about that? Yeah. Well, that's why I love how the book sort of ends where it has, you know, an easy entry into the issue because a lot of people do feel overwhelmed of where to start. They can pray. And then also there is a ways, you know, wondering where to start. There's the sort of header at the end of each chapter of like, here's an organization that's tackling this very specific issue. And this is how you can get involved. So I think... I'm hoping as people read it, you know, people are drawn to certain causes. They're drawn to certain parts of this issue. And there is an organization for everyone that they can get involved in. So I think that's a really amazing way to get people mobilized. Well, I think that's right. And that's a really helpful um, uh, addition to this conversation because obviously at Ministry Watch, you know, we're, we are concerned about Christian ministries and what they're doing in the world and how they're doing it. And, and like I've I've said before, and we've kind of said around about in this conversation that in many ways, the pregnancy care center movement is kind of, you know, they're kind of the foot soldiers of the pro-life movement. They're the kind of the unsung heroes, the, you know, if you really add them up, how many, 2,000, more than 2,000 pregnancy care centers? Over 2,500. Yeah. And, you know, you think that each one of those has a staff, each one of those has a team of volunteers, each one of those has a board of directors. We're talking about tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people because they've all got donors as well, maybe even in the low millions of people that are unsung, they're not you know, their names are not on books like y'all's are <laughs> now, and uh, which, which I think is great too. But, um, but yeah, to, to celebrate them in this way is a really good thing. So thanks, yeah. for the, thanks for doing that. And they really are the unsung heroes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the ones that are at the, the forefront of this issue, and they're mm-hmm. meeting with women, abortion-vulnerable women, every day. And, yeah. you know, they're— they're taking some really hard cases. They're they're working with women, um, and it's this is where prayer really comes in as well. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I was gonna say. They need the prayer because they are interacting with that. I asked one nurse once, "What's the hardest part of your job?" And she said, "Well, to be the one who's the only one to see that little baby alive," mm-hmm. and that like just blew me away because then they also said we're the most unbiased people in this 
this entire conversation because we have nothing to gain from her decision, no matter what she chooses, but we're going to be there for her no matter what. Yeah. Two questions in closing. Um, number one, how was it to write the book together? What What did y'all do? Did you did like did you divide it up and go away and write, or did you edit each other? Did you were you exchanging back and forth? What well, What did that process look like for y'all? It was constant back and forth. Uh, we both have unique, I think, skill sets within writing. And Brittany is an amazing journalist and loves doing the deep dive research. And and so she did a lot of the stat finding and research and engagement with the organizations that are featured. And I had already, prior to even the book idea, been interviewing women through my work with Save the Storks. And so I was able to kind of gather stories and review old notes from them. Yeah. It's, uh, in fact, um, there are videos. Y'all have got a website and videos that that uh, part of your job at Save the Storks is to go and do these video interviews. So a lot of these people like Rosaliani, I know you've got her on video. Is that correct? Yeah. About half of the stories, we have videos of them telling their stories, which is so fun. So if you go to unplannedgracebook.com, you can actually watch some of the videos before you even read the book or throughout the book, you'll have that um, URL to go and check out. Yeah. The I've seen a couple of the videos. And now that I've read the book, I actually saw one or two of the videos before I read the book. And then I went back and looked at a couple of videos after I read the book. And it's, it's, uh, you know, because when you read a book, you build a mental picture. But when you actually see the person, sometimes it reinforced my mental picture. But sometimes it was a, wow, that's not the way I pictured her at all, you know? So, uh, okay, the final question, just kind of, you know, lightning around for both of you. What do you hope people get out of the book? Brittany, why don't you start? Yeah, I think for me, I hope it gives people especially the church, a real empathy for what a lot of these women are facing. I mean, like you said, they're getting pressure on all sides, and this is a really difficult decision. So I hope that it mobilizes people in the church, um, Christians who have maybe always been pro-life but haven't always known where to start or they feel like it's too political and they don't want to get involved. You know, for us, the Pregnancy Center movement is a non-political movement that I that I want everyone to get behind because I think they're really reaching women every day. And that's where we can have a huge impact mm-hmm. on the pro-life movement. Yeah. I, <laughs> I agree with everything that she said. Uh, you said it very well. In addition to that, um, part of the, you know, idea for this book at the very beginning was creating a middle ground for both sides because it has been seen as so political and polarizing. We wanted to give that middle ground of here's a book that tells about how we care for women. You can't deny that this is caring for women well. So if the approach um, that's being presented is, well, you know, you only care about the baby or you you just have this one agenda, this is actually showing how we could approach the conversation with people who disagree and say, this, you know, this is really caring for our communities, elevating women, caring for men as well, and really ensuring that everyone is has the resources they need and, and it's free. It's a gift and I think it's a beautiful expression of the gospel. You've been listening to my conversation with Natasha Smith and Brittany Smith, co-authors of the new book, Unplanned Grace, a compassionate conversation on life and choice. It's out from David C. Cook Publishers. Before we go, a quick reminder that my book, Faith-Based Fraud, is now on sale to the public as well. We have hardback, paperback, ebook, and audiobooks available. You can 
find them by going to Amazon or other online book retailers. I hope you'll get a copy today. I also want to let you know that we'll be offering a free webinar within the next week or so. It's called How to Find and Read a Form 990. And we'll be offering that webinar next Thursday, September the 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And though it is free, you do need to register. And you can do that by hitting the link that you'll find in my daily Ministry Watch emails. The producer for today's program are Rich Rosell and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.